This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. Val Beckerman, thank you so much for joining us on Poured Over. Your new book, The Quiet Before on the Unexpected Origins of Radical Ideas, is out. But you got a PhD <laughs> to write this book. And I don't think I've ever heard a story like that. And I am dying to know the details. So give them up. Are you getting right into like the psychology? Yes. Now? Because, you know, this this is what happens when you have an imposter complex is you go, <laughs> you, you feel that you need to learn everything you can about a subject before you have the authority to write on it. So with this book, I had an inkling that there was a subject that I was really interested in writing about. And it just occurred to me that I wanted the knowledge base. Look, there were other considerations too. You know, I wasn't quite at the New York Times uh, yet and was trying to figure out how to have a stable career writing and thinking. And academia always presented itself as kind of a nice chance to do that. <laughs> and so I thought, well, let me see if I can write a book and also get a PhD and sort of do those two things at the same time. Do a book that could be for a trade publisher, but also could serve maybe as a dissertation one day. And it was a strange choice, but it worked out. And by the time I wrote the book that's the book right now, I really felt like I had gotten the knowledge base to speak about things the way I wanted to, which was not as somebody who's sort of dabbling, but who actually had really spent time with the literature and, and then could leave it all behind. Because my real objective with this book was to sort of take those big ideas and turn them into stories. And I think, especially too, when you're tackling ideas, this is a book that you are working on a global stage. You are talking about technology across centuries. And everyone does have a different definition of technology, but we're talking about technology. We're talking about how people use technology. You are putting a context onto the sharing and growth of what you call in the subtitle, radical ideas. There's a great line that you have early on when you say, the incubation of radical new ideas is a very distinct process with certain conditions. A tight space, lots of heat, passionate whispering, and a degree of freedom to argue and to work towards a common focused aim. You can't make a point like that without the human mm -hmm. stories. Oh, no. And for me, what was exciting about this book was to have that long trajectory to, you know, that was the, the original concept was to say, could, could there be a book that starts in the 17th century with letters before the scientific revolution and the way they allowed these disparate groups of people spread throughout Europe to begin thinking in a scientific way when it wasn't quite allowed, you know, doing something fairly dissident, start with letters before the scientific revolution, and then go all the way to the role of Twitter and Black Lives Matter in, in Minneapolis in 2020. What would it mean to have a book that took you as a reader through all of these various stories so that you both understood that those conditions, the ones you just described, could be true in all of these different moments, but also appreciate the differences that exist over time and space. But that was the excitement of it for me, was to sort of smush together all these historical examples and see if there were certain universal qualities. And then the next question was the degree to which those are actually existing for us today online, because the internet is so much the dominant technology through which we're communicating with one another. We start in 17th century France, as you say, then we go to the UK mm -hmm. in the 1800s. Then we go to Italy around the time of World War I, Africa mm -hmm. in the 1930s. And then we get to Moscow in 1968. 
before mm-hmm. we get to the states in the 90s. Right. And you've picked these really pivotal points where the technology at the time, yes, it was pen and paper, and then it was printing press, and then mm-hmm. it was the typewriter, but it was always that physical contact with an object, right? right. Whether it was a bound pamphlet or a book or mm-hmm. a piece of paper or, or petition or what have you. How did you start the research for this book? Separate from your PhD, you yeah, had to yeah, do, yeah. you know, yes, of the course you're doing ideas, all this work, right. but how do you identify these points? How do you know where you want to start? Oh, it's so it was hard. I think mm-hmm. that was probably the hardest part. And I remember saying this about my previous book, casting the book is, is the is the hardest thing when you have this sort of big idea that's driving you. You not just want to illustrate it. You want to illustrate it in a way that uses the techniques of fiction. You know, you want to have narrative arcs within your chapters and the stories you're telling. You want to have compelling characters. You want to have plot. So all of that sort of raises the bar very high for finding examples, not just of this phenomenon that I'm describing, which is, you know, how small groups of people begin to incubate, you know, new ideas. But I want to find examples that are really going to be interesting to people and that are going to allow me to tell stories. So the, the first chapter, which is about this arist- French aristocrat in the you know the 1630s who organizes what we would call almost he crowdsources <laughs> a scientific experiment. Uh, he finds people all over what was then the known world to all observe an eclipse on the same night. And the idea is that the data they'll collect together will give them the possibility of figuring out the correct measurement of the Mediterranean Sea, which had been incorrectly, it was, sailors knew where, where it was incorrectly measured. And he did find out that it was about a thousand miles shorter than than people had thought. But that was like a footnote in something else that I had read. You know, I just read about this interesting character who was at the at the center of this enormous web of letter writers. And I thought, oh, that's kind of interesting. And he's doing it at a time where Galileo is being persecuted for writing books. But he's not writing books. Uh, his name is Peresk. Peresk is not writing books. He's writing letters. And the letters are giving him a chance to do this sort of subversive scientific work at the same time. And so that was just a footnote. And I began to, to research it and realized it was just a really, really fascinating story. And then built the chapter around that eclipse observation because it provided the kind of narrative tension that you would want. But, you know, a lot of that was some reverse engineering. You know, I would take a movement. I would say, you know, I'd really love to do something on, on independence in Africa and decolonialization. And and huh, let's sort of reel back the tape to the beginning. Like, where were the conversations among Africans happening where they could start to conceive of challenging the British and thinking through what a national identity would look like for them? One beyond tribe, one where they had to kind of set the boundaries of what it would mean to be not an individual within a group but part of a nation. Where did those conversations happen? They must have been talking somewhere. They must have been sharing ideas and imagining together and debating. And the more I sort of scratched and scratched at that, I found that there were these phenomenally interesting, like small newspapers that I, I use the word newspaper, but really they're not newspapers in the way we think about them today with a paid professional staff of reporters who go out and get information. They were almost more like op-ed pages. They were just filled with contributions from readers almost entirely. And and almost always anonymously or pseudonymously. And what they would do on those pages would they would argue about all the details of what a nation would look like for them, what a modern African nation could look like for them. And they, you know, they had to work out a lot of issues. I mean, what the pages and pages of should we have be monogamous or allow polygamy? in this future African state. It doesn't even exist yet. They're still under the British thumb, but they are beginning to imagine these things and they're doing it on the page. So that was an instance where like, I found that because I really wanted to understand the origins of that particular radical idea. And you know, it was just a, it was just a long process 
process. I also discarded probably like 10 or 15, you know, ones that I got way down the road looking into just because for whatever reason, this combination of elements that I needed to exist didn't exist sort of in the way that I wanted them to. I mean, essentially you're writing about people's creativity. Yeah. I'm writing about group creativity, which is mm-hmm. not something we often do. You know, it's, yeah. I think that was, that's what was interesting to me is what happens in the friction between people's minds through conversation, through discussion, through the exchange of idea, through debate, through even this process of sort of egging one another on. You know, somebody says something and they say, well, why don't we do it like this? And that seems like such a crucial element in bringing about any idea that's going to sort of undermine the nature of reality as we know it, you know? Take the African example, you've been living in a subjugated situation for centuries, and suddenly you have to think of a nation and what a nation will look like. Where do you begin to do that? How do you do that? If that's not one person's idea, that's a group of people coming together and they need sort of a mediated way to share, to encounter one another. I mean, that's the other way of thinking about this is, you know, we have this great mythology about the coffee house, right? And the role that it played, you know, as a sort of a site of people coming together and being able to debate and argue and come up with new ideas. But this coffee house is not always available to people either because it's literally too dangerous. As some, some of my examples, like people I'm writing about communicate in the way they do, because what they're doing is so subversive, so dangerous that they would get imprisoned or killed for doing it. And so there's many times where the coffee house is not available and you need some kind of mediated space. And there are other times where the scale, you know, you're bringing enough people in so that you don't want it to be quite as small as the number of people who would fit into a coffee house. You want it to be able to grow and to recruit people to your thinking. So in some ways, it's, it's sort of like taking that idea of what kind of spaces do we need to generate new ideas and what happens there? I want to go back to something you said yeah. really quickly, undermining. Mm-hmm. If we look at your story in Moscow, 1968 in Samizat, mm-hmm. and you have a line in this chapter that really surprised me. There's a moment where the Samizat becomes a fixture mm-hmm. in the community. And my understanding was always that this was super underground because it was very, very dangerous for people to be passing this around. And in yeah. fact, Natasha, the editor that you're really writing about, she is constantly undermined by the police. They keep sending her to the psych ward. Even when she's pregnant, they're just like, oh, you're just bananas. We're going to call you schizophrenic and lock you away. When in fact, she is simply doing what a good editor does is putting together stories so people can connect to the larger point. And yet she is really being massively undermined in really disturbing ways. Yeah. I mean, she knows that. And in fact, that the the underground journal that she started ended up having many, many editors over its life because people would just get arrested and then somebody else would pop up and sort of take that role. And you almost knew, as she did, that from the, almost the very beginning, that it was just a matter of time before she would be arrested or they would be undermined in some way. But these were people who wanted to live under a different value system, right? They were living in an authoritarian regime where they couldn't think freely. They wanted to have some kind of democratic norms too. They wanted civil rights and human rights and to be able to have a place where the government would somehow be accountable for providing those rights. And that none of that existed in the Soviet Union, of course. So what they did is they created through their community with each other and through the creation of Samizdat, because Samizdat was really like the currency. It was the thing that they did, that through that, they made a shadow civil society that didn't otherwise exist. It was like an underground civil society that was built around the Samizdat. The journal that I focus on in that chapter is 
basically a pastiche every month of the different sorts of violations that they're seeing out in the country. And it was amazing to me how it sort of built over time because sometimes that was passed hand to hand. You would you'd only know the person who gave you a copy and said, here, take like two days with this and then pass it on to somebody else. But it became a chain because you would usually get your chronicle of current events, the chronicle. And you'd usually get the chronicle from the same person. You would know, you know, some guy who was in your who you worked with who also was sort of into this dissident stuff who would sort of hand it off to you. So that became your contact. And then you had somebody you would pass it off to. Over time, the way that the journal worked is that if you notice some sort of violations or a human right or civil right violation that bothered you, say, you know, a coworker, you're a teacher and one of your coworkers gets fired from their job for talking about a censored book. You would write it on a piece of paper with all the details. They wanted this was very, they were very focused on having this be as sort of scientific and meticulous as possible. You write it down and then you pass it to the person who gave you your issue of the Chronicle, who was your sort of next link in the chain. And they pass to their person, they pass to their person. And then we get back to Natasha in the, in the early days, but whoever the editor was of the Chronicle at that moment. You know, somebody, I once described this and they said, it's a little bit like Tor the technology that allows you to sort of hide your IP address, where you only know sort of the link in the chain before and the link in the chain after. And so it allowed people to sort of be part of this huge network that gave them a real sense of identity, an identity of being in that shadow civil society, that we are the people that live by different standards, by different values, even though they aren't respected in this country, just by virtue of reporting, witnessing this thing and sort of passing it on and then seeing it in the next issue of the Chronicle gave them that feeling. It also reinforced a little bit of the bleak humor that Russians can be known for, because you have a great line, too, about a woman saying, well, you know, I couldn't get my kid to read War and Peace, so I retyped yeah. it as Sanzat yeah. and passed it to her, and she read it in a day. And it's like, oh, because that transparency was missing from anywhere else. Lying to your kid about War and Peace is not transparent, but yeah. the yeah. news that was contained in the Chronicle, mm -hmm. no one had ever seen anything like that before, because yeah. it was the stuff that you whisper. Yeah. You know, it was interesting to be researching this in our moment of, we see the way the truth is often undermined and become a contentious topic. But for them, writing this journal in as dry and dispassionate a manner as, as possible was the most subversive thing they could do because they felt like all the news that they were consuming, you know, Pravda and Izvestia were the two big newspapers and it was just transparently propagandistic. Like you just never could believe anything that was in there. And for them, they did corrections. And that was like a revolutionary act that you would have an issue and the next issue would be like, sorry, we misspelled that person's name. Or, you know, we said that they were this age, but they're really that age. And it was so important for them to do that because it reinforced this sense of living under a different set of values. Ones where like the attempt to get at truth was actually the most important thing. Because for them, for Soviet citizens, I think, you know, the ones who became dissidents what tipped them over the edge, you know, when I would talk to them was this kind of double thing, you know, this, this need to always have a certain way of talking and being in public. And then privately together, they would, like you said, they would whisper other things. You know, they knew anybody could see in front of their eyes. Part of the sort of underground mentality that we're seeing from the letters and we're seeing from the manifestos and then we're seeing in Samizat, it brings us to zines in the 90s. And yeah. the zine world of the 90s was wild. It was fun. We hadn't seen anything like it. It was aggressive. It was angry. It was smart. It was rude. It was very punk rock, yeah. but not always punk rock. It was a lot of women and girls saying, hey, this is not okay. Mm -hmm. And we are pissed. And guess what? Some of us are still pissed, but okay. <laughs> 
Well, that's the well. I, I see those zines as the root of third wave feminism. Uh-huh. They, they, it was the style that we've come to associate yeah. with third wave feminism. Of I'm going to talk about my own personal experience and what it's like for me to be a woman in this world, and the movement sort of builds out of that reality mm-hmm. and not mm-hmm. an abstract set of principles, but that anger. And what I found so fascinating about zines is that the young women who were creating them really felt like they were filling a vacuum for themselves. They said, mm-hmm. this media doesn't exist. Like what we see around us on television in the glossy magazines, it's telling us one story about what it means to be a girl, what it means to be a woman. And it's really not our experience. And so because nobody's creating this for us, we're just going to make it ourselves. Mm-hmm. And I found that such so powerful, you know, because they really wanted, they wanted to talk about eating disorders. They wanted to talk about sexual abuse. They wanted to talk about the terrible men that they were having to deal with. They wanted a, some of it was, you know, a lot of, I focused in the chapter on Riot Girl, probably the most sort of revolutionary edge of the zines at that time, you know, in the sense that it, they created a real network around the zines in the way that Samizdat did. Actually, it's funny because a lot of them talked about Samizdat as a precursor. They understood that they were working in a kind of uh, underground stream of communication. By creating it themselves, they were giving themselves, sort of empowering one another and empowering a community. And, and it was mm-hmm, super mm-hmm. underground though. Like you yeah. got them from friends or you sent a dollar totally. to a mailbox somewhere and you Absolutely. got a thing back in the mail. Like it felt like no one else knew what this world was and it only yeah. belonged to you. Yeah. And then Cosmo wrote about it and that was really weird. So. So, so right. So that's why that chapter is both the excitement of the zines and a kind of cautionary tale because what happens very quickly is that popular culture does what popular culture usually does, which it recognizes something that seems edgy and cool and different and it immediately appropriates it. And it did so at a time where these young women, you know, they just wanted to be able to exchange the zines and have that be the building of something. They didn't even know what it was yet. There was beginning to be sort of a political dynamic to it. Remember, this is the 90s. There was sort of increasingly a political edge to what they were talking about and what they wanted to do with this growing movement, but they really wanted it to stay nascent. They wanted it to stay for the moment, this accumulation of voices and reverberation of voices. And what happened is once it got co-opted and became an article about how you too can dress like a riot girl, you know, like, you know, you got to get these Doc Martens and, you know, wear, wear your hair in this way and take a marker and write stuff on your skin. And this is the style of the zines, you know, that was also sort of fetishized, you know, quickly became a kind of MTV grabbed onto it. And once that happened, they felt totally undermined. They felt that they'd lost their sort of safe space to kind of argue and think amongst themselves. Riot Girl as a movement that could have sort of built to some sort of political place sort of fizzled out. A lot of those women and girls went on to Tumblr and they went on to Instagram and some were on Facebook. It really was much more a Tumblr Instagram crowd than it was Facebook or Twitter or anything like that. And this does bring us though to cyberspace and we've all been living in the space and yeah, I'm making a face at you while we tape this piece of the the show because you can see the roots of Charlottesville and Gamergate. Right. You've read all of those messages. You know, we're going to let readers experience that chapter for themselves <laughs> because there's so much about how propaganda gets used and the phrase optics and, and how seriously white supremacists take optics. They are yeah. very, very concerned about how oh, people yeah. will perceive them. And, you know, here we are. And just last week, we're taping this in early February. And just last week, there was a book burning. And I did not think I would be living in a time when book burning just kind of happened because it happened. Book banning, unfortunately, is something that apparently will never stop. But book burning is back. And even yeah. the white supremacist Nazis in Charlottesville were like, we can't do this. The yeah. 
That was that was that was a funny moment. I mean, I, I hate to say there were funny moments, but there kind of were because you were sort of the seriousness of which they took themselves and the absurd things they were talking about. Yeah, that was one of them. Can we do a book burning after the after the rally? Nah, I don't think it's a good idea. We'll just look like we're anti-intellectual or you know. <laughs> We're okay with hitting people with cars, but you right. know, book burning the objects right. are bad. Right. Right. But this comes to a larger point that you are talking about. And the question is, is it the community that comes first or is it the idea that comes first? Is it the idea that builds the community or does a community say, right. hey, we're missing this piece of it? I don't know if we can say with any certainty, wow, it feels like we ping pong between yeah, these two I- poles. Totally. And, you know, one of the things that was really important for me to do when I got into, you know, so half the book is sort of this pre-digital communication and the way people are communicating. And then I said, okay, we're going to go into our reality. But before I did that, with both feet jumping in to the movements that have, you know, shaped the last 10, 15 years of our reality, I wanted to go back to the very, very early internet and it's not wasn't even the internet there. It was just like the earliest sort of what were called virtual communities and see what they thought about what it would mean to communicate in this sort of disembodied way online where the features of physical space aren't there and to see how they understood it. You know, I focused on this one, I mean, they they literally called themselves a virtual community. They were first to do so called The Well, which was out of the Bay Area. And interestingly, it was run by the people who were sort of running the community were all former commune livers. They had communards. They had actually, you know, set up these alternative places to live in America. And they knew what it was like to sort of build community. And so they were in a way like the kind of perfect people to manage these new spaces. It was just fascinating that almost right away, and we're talking about a few hundred people at this point, not the scale that we have on a Facebook or a Twitter, a few hundred people. And they understood that in order for this to be a productive space, there would have to be a certain number of guardrails up. There would have to be moderators. There would have to be this sort of separate space where the moderators could chat and discuss sort of the issues that were coming up. There would have to be even an escape valve where they could actually see each other in personal and physical space because they understood that that was sort of a good counterbalance. They would need the chance to kick people out. And I think I have in there, it's very quickly they learned cyberspace needed bouncers. And it was fascinating to me how quickly that became obvious to them. And the point of that chapter was to say that we have this kind of dreaminess, this romanticizing that we do about what it means to be able to interact and communicate in this way. And in some ways that was sort of baked in in the very early internet. And certainly it's the kind of Silicon Valley ideology. (laughs) But what was forgotten, I think, was that lesson that they learned right away, which was that in order for this to really work, to really work to people's benefits, to be pro-social, then you really need to put a lot of thought into the structure, into the architecture of where people are having these communities and how conversation is existing in these spaces. There is narrative and then there is the slow gathering of power is something Mm -hmm. you write towards the end of the book. And One of the chapters is about the summer of 2020 Mm -hmm. and Black Lives Matter and this movement that we saw embraced by people outside of the community that petered out. And yet you really dig into the organizers on the ground, especially in Miami, who are really doing the work because sometimes the online piece, well, there's narrative and then there's the slow gathering of power. And this is something that not every online organizer understands or online personality understands that sometimes you just really have to be on the ground, connecting with people, talking to people face-to-face and not just typing across a screen. 
Yeah. You know, there was a really interesting perspective to have on the summer of 2020. I had actually written a Black Lives Matter chapter that was done. I had a draft of it that was done in the in December 2019. And it was sort of an elegaic sort of chapter where people looking back to 2015, 16 and saying, here was this moment where the world's attention or America's attention was kind of turned towards our movement and our cause. And then we kind of like didn't know how to to move it on to on the ground organizing. And that was where it ended. And then 2020 happened. I said, I have to rip up this chapter and write it again. But when I went back to those organizers, I thought that I would encounter people who were amazed and in awe as I was, you know, that that was happening, that America was turning in the way that it did to these painful realities of our history and our current existence. And they were excited about that and they were energized by it. I can't say that they weren't, but they were also terrified because they said, here we go again. You know, the attention is going to come, there's going to be all these wonderful symbolic victories. Names will be changed and, and press releases will be put out by big corporations and people will take a knee and members of Congress will wear kente cloth, you know, and like, look, you cannot discount that. Like, that's part of how a conversation changes. That's part of how minds change. And the people I talked to were so intelligent about the role and the importance of that. But then they said, we're also worried. We're worried that this means people will be able to like check off racism and to say that all these issues that we really are trying to make a difference on in local communities just won't happen. And once the wave sort of like you know, goes out that all the people who were energized by this will also leave and won't be involved because the work that they're trying to do, that the organizers are trying to do is hard work. It's about talking to people in your community. It's also about talking amongst themselves, you know, long, difficult conversations to try to figure out strategy, to try to make, you know, relationships with local council members and, you know, figuring out how to get people elected into not huge national positions, but local positions that will reinforce the causes that they're working towards. All of it was really hard. You know, I, I focus on that chapter on Minneapolis too. And they found themselves after that summer with this great, what turned out to be kind of symbolic win, which is the city council saying that they would get rid of the police. And then that really quickly turned into nothing because there were other powers in the city that prevented that from really happening. And then they decided, well, we need to get this before the voters as a referendum. And they did. They worked really hard to get that in November 21, to get that in front of voters. And in order to do that, they had to collect signatures. They had to petition to get a referendum. And they talked to me so beautifully about that process. And it was so different from the hashtag gone viral. It was, we need to get these signatures. We need to go out into the community and talk to people and understand what their vision of community-led safety is. You know, And sometimes it means dropping the slogan of defund the police or abolish the police and actually saying, okay, let's put that aside because a lot of people still want to know that there are police, but what's maybe a different way that we can use the city's budget? They give so much of their money to the police. What's a different way that we can use it? What's a different way that you would use it? What would you like to see? Where do you see the police being hurtful for you and your community? And where do you see them being helpful? And those conversations led to signatures, led to the referendum. It was voted down. I think 56% voted against and 44% voted for it. And, you know, at one surface level, that's failure, right? They tried to do this big radical change in their community and it didn't take. But if you understand change to be incremental, as I do, real sustainable change, going from zero to 44% is a pretty big increment. It means you've managed to convince a lot of people that a reality that they've taken completely for granted and just thought this is how it is and how it will always be for time immemorial could change. That was a really sort of instructive 
postscript to what we experienced in the summer of 2020. You've done a lot of tough interviews too for this book, not just with Black Lives Matter organizers, but also there's a chapter on the Arab Spring. You have done interviews with the Southern Poverty Law Center for Mm -hmm. the Charlottesville chapter and some other researchers who are spending a lot of time in complicated spaces. Yes. You have also written about COVID as well and disinformation Mm -hmm. there. Interviews can be intense. They can be really rewarding. But what's the thing you love most about doing them? I really love the kind of interviewing you can do for a book, you know, because I also have like a journalist's hat that I wear sometimes. And it sometimes feels unfortunate because you're, you don't want to do this, but you're thinking already in terms of where what somebody says to you is going to fit into the context of a newspaper article. With a book, it can be a much more leisurely process. I talk to many of these people for hours and hours, repeat conversations. And it's not the quote that you're trying to get. It's your own accumulating knowledge of a situation and their life experience that you're trying to get them to share with you. That's a question of sort of building confidence and also getting them to trust you, essentially. You know, my first book was sort of a a dissection of of a single social movement. And I talked to hundreds and hundreds of people for it. And it was kind of amazing because I would, I mean, these were Russian dissidents. I literally had hundreds of these days where I would show up at their house and there'd be like vodka and like pickled mushrooms (laughs) put out on the table. And it would be like six or seven hours of me slowly sort of losing real coherence. But the tape recorder was there and hearing their stories. And what happens over time is it's almost like a, tri- a triangulation where you start to hear many different people talk about the same events and you emerge from those interviews more and more confident every time that you know what you're talking about when you're writing about them and what they experienced. And after doing many, many of these, I would finish their sentences. You know, they would talk about a particular event that I was writing about and they would say, well, we were at this protest. I said, oh, the one that was in, you know, Moscow in 1974 in front of the Red Square where you did the thing with the thing. And they, yeah, yeah, yeah. How do you know? Because you, you really have let yourself sort of marinate in their world and their stories. And that is, to me, what's wonderful about doing the sorts of interviewing that you can do on a long project. But you also can't really separate the people from the tech. And Mm -hmm. I want to go back to something we were talking about earlier with Samazat and zines, the idea that these were the tech of the moment, that letters Mm -hmm. were the tech. And now we've got these apps, WeChat in China, we've got iMessage, we've got Slack, Mm -hmm. we've got all of these different chat apps. But you raised something towards the end of the book that made me say, huh, this is really interesting. You have a couple of different points where you're talking about needing to create a different kind of community online. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And a couple of the guys who'd been involved very deeply in Arab Spring tried to create a new sort of... Yeah, new platform. Yeah, yeah, okay. Platform is the word I'm looking for. (laughs) But it looks like the Taiwanese might possibly have a path through this. And part of why I raise an eyebrow is I spent a lot of time in Tokyo and Taipei as a kid, and you could feel the air change when you got to Taipei and suddenly the adults were whispering and there were military police and there was concertina. Like it was just a very different experience and people did not raise their voices and people were not talking about certain things in public, if at all. The idea that the Taiwanese might come to our rescue (laughs) makes me very happy. Delights me, in fact. After I did this whole sort of search through history and then spent all this time in the last 10, 15 years of the social movements that we've come to know, I was, I, I thought, okay, I need to, I need to search around for the solutions or the people trying to come up with the solutions in terms of building the kinds of platforms, these places where, where people can come together and the features, the again, the architecture of those platforms is one that allows them to 
build towards consensus, that, that allows them to hear one another, that isn't about being the loudest person in the room, that there are features built into the communication system. Because that's another lesson I hope people come away from the book with is that, you know, we need to think about wherever we have these conversations, the, the structure of the platforms themselves affect the types of conversations we can have. So I, one of them was this great uh, example in Taiwan where for people trying to get, they're trying to solicit public opinion on new controversial legislation and provide an opportunity for people to give input, but give input in a way that will build towards understanding where the overlapping areas of agreement are. It's a little hard to explain, but it's this app where people can, there's a bigger issue that's being debated and you can put your argument forward and then people vote on it. And the voting begins to create this kind of data visualization. So if a number of people agree on something, there's there's like a blob. I'm, I'm waving my hands in the air, but nobody can actually see this. But there's, a, there's sort of a blob of agreement here and then a smaller one here and another one there. And then the objectives is to like, you know, you want to get as many people to kind of agree with your point of view. So you change up again the comment that you're putting out there or the argument you're putting out there or the, the position rather. And then more people sort of join you because you've sort of modified it to, to include their concerns or their ideas until you can kind of get to like, oh, these are the four or five areas of the largest amount of agreement on any particular issue. And I've spoken about this very abstractly just now, but it is, to me, it was interesting that people can actually put their minds towards thinking of other ways to use the technology that could have those objectives. On a much, much simpler level, think about think about what happens when you take away a like button or you can't upvote a comment. And the difference between having a conversation that is about, let me say the thing that will get me the most followers or likes or attention shifts the kind of things you might say out loud in public versus when you take that away, it might be the impulse might be, let me say the thing that's going to keep the conversation going, that might acknowledge what somebody else said and maybe ask a question so that it will get other people to respond and and keep the ball rolling. That sort of, those kind of architectural questions of the design questions became really fascinating to me because I think that's ultimately where some of the solution is, you know, I don't think there's a perfect one, you know, but it's in thinking about being self-aware of the kind of tools that we're using to talk to one another, that that is really what we need to be able, and, and people who are engaged in movements and people who want to make change need to really understand that aspect of communicating online. Okay. So we know who you are as a writer and we understand yeah. who you are as a researcher, but let's talk about the architecture of Gall, as a reader, <laughs> as a reader, who are some of the influences? This is not written like a textbook. This is not written like a polemic. This is, you are telling a very big story. Yeah. I mean, I love some of the great like social movement books. I mean, Taylor Branch's three volume book about the civil rights movement, ostensibly sort of a biography of King, but it's not really, it sort of brings in so much other stuff. He's one of my heroes. Adam Hochschild. King Leopold's Ghost. King Leopold's Ghost and some of the other books he's done since then, Buried the Chains, which is about the abolition movement uh, in England. Uh, that's another one. But I'm also very inspired, I think, by novels, by, by literature. You know, I, I do try to write in a way that I love that convergence of writing about real things that have stakes, but using the tools of fiction because we know that they work. 
in terms of keeping people's attention and drawing people in because it's about human nature. You know, what I understood about this book is that I was going to tell these stories and it wasn't going to be perfectly aligned. It's not that each of these stories is an exact mirror of the other. I mean, that'd be pretty boring if that's what it was. What was important to me was to tell of the particularity, the granularity, the individual stories of how change happens in this world. And there was just a great fascination in people who are on the front line of that and sort of would think back to some like 19th century (laughs) Russian literature, you know, Tolstoy and the notion of, you know, history is made not by, you know, the great men, but, you know, you need to tell the story of the small people on the battlefield in all the different positions that that is very much what inspired me. In, in writing these, you know, that it would give a glimpse of the real work of change, of changing minds, of, of moving some idea that was unfathomable beforehand into the center of society and how it works. That seems like a really great place, actually, to end the conversation. <laughs> I know you and I were talking about maybe working in some thoughts on criticism, but that does not lend itself to a short conversation. So we're going to have to figure out how to have a different version of that conversation, I think. Gall Beckerman, thank you so much. The Quiet Before on the Unexpected Origins of Radical Ideas is out now. Thank you so much for having me. Now it's time for your TBR Top Off right here on Port Over, the Barnes & Noble podcast. Again, thanks for joining us this week. My name is James, and welcome to the TBR Top Off. I'm here, as always, with Margie. Hi, Margie. Hi, James. We're coming to you from Northville, Michigan, and we're excited to recommend three books to your to-be-read list this week based on the interview you just heard with Gal Beckerman and The Quiet Before on Unexpected Origins of Radical Ideas, a book I am so fascinated to read and to dive into you guys. I can't even tell you. Oh, second, second for sure. Very excited. We are also joined by AJ today, all the way from Flint, Michigan, just up the street. Hi, AJ. How are you? Hello. Thank you for having me. Great to have you back on. So we're excited to recommend three books. Margie, do you want to go first? I would love to. So the book that I have for this one is called Present Shock. It is by Douglas Rushkoff. Uh, The book came out like eight years ago, which seems like a long time, but the premise holds just as strongly as when it was first published. It is important to note that there was a book published in 1970 called Future Shock. It's by a guy named Alvin Toffler, and he explained the phenomena of too much change too fast. It's this that Rushkoff is referencing in Present Shock, which he kind of defines as the dissonance between our digital lives and our physical bodies and locations, like the intersection between culture and technology. Uh, The book is divided into ways present shock is detrimental. The one that came to mind immediately when thinking about The Quiet Before is called overwinding, which is cramming huge time scales into much, much smaller ones. So he gives these examples of like, squeezing a five-act play into like the flash of a reality TV show or having all of your expectations for retail sales be in one Black Friday weekend. So it gives you this sense that every moment is as pressingly important as the last. There's no context. There's no deep thought. There's no hesitation. So we have to immediately respond regardless of the situation. And this basically negates our sense of the future or actionable goals that may take place later or over time. And that's just one of the aspects of present shock. It it is 
just mind blowing. It was so fascinating. And you will see yourself in the descriptions in the way that he talks about human behavior being manipulated by technology to feel like you must always be in the now, just the now, and you're not doing it fast enough. (laughs) So that is Present Shock by Douglas Rushkoff. I love Douglas Rushkoff. I remember him being on a lot of PBS documentaries and uh, what a great recommendation. I'm coming in with uh, one that I read this last year called Factfulness. This is by Hans Rosling. came out in, in 2018. It's in paperback. It's still a really popular book, but he talks about why our innate biases will sometimes skew our view of the world and progress around the world. His argument is that the world is actually getting better overall, as opposed to going the other way around, right? So he offers some clear and actionable advice, Bill Gates says, to overcome our innate biases and see the world more factfully. And oftentimes, the facts will come against our own biases or our own feelings. And he really encourages us to look at those and to think afresh, which I think is one of the themes in uh, The Quiet Before, which I think factfulness really had that impact on me. It was a really refreshing read. Some of the data is probably a little outdated at this point, but just seeing the data from, from 2018 and all of the things that he talks about, it's really, really helpful to see how the world has changed in the last 50 or even 100 years. So I thought it was really refreshing and gave me some reasons to hope about uh, how the world is getting better. So Factfulness by Hans Rosling is my pick for this week. And AJ, what do you have for us? All right. Well, today I have something in complete contrast to that. 21 Lessons for the 21st (laughs) Century. Uh, Yuval Noah Harari is the author there. It was also Mm -hmm. out in 2018. He addresses his 21 biggest concerns facing the world today and for the future. 21 Lessons for the 21st Century is about where we are now and how to move forward. It's easy to digest and very engaging. His other two titles, Sapiens, which was about our past, and Homo Deus, which was about our future, sets up this book, the middle ground between the two, drawing on ideas from both previous titles to discuss some important complex issues in a very intelligent, genuine way and thought-provoking way. Yuval Harari addresses questions such as AI, climate change, religion, immigration, technology, politics, a very unique take on terrorism, education, and secular ethics. This is a book of conversation starters in so many ways. Conversations that need to be had and need to be had now. I can't recommend the title enough, especially considering what we've gone through lately. 21 Lessons for the 21st Century by Yuval Noah Harari. Wow, that sounds so interesting. I love how you said that it was like conversation starters. Yeah, I mean, with this next one about having conversations or or group thought in a smaller group, non-world settings, I thought that would be a great TBR title. Totally. Yeah, great recommendation. I loved Sapiens. So love to hear another one from that author. Well, thanks for joining us this week on Port Over, the Barnes & Noble podcast, and your TBR top off. My name is James. You can follow me on Instagram at jamesreadingbooks. And I'm Margie. You can follow me at Margie Book Brain. And you can follow BN Flint MI on Instagram as well. Thanks for listening. We will talk to you next time. 
Happy reading! Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts.